Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. We are in the midst of a summer series that we are doing in the book of Proverbs that we're calling Masterclass Expert Advice on Living Well. And the book of Proverbs is in our Bible in order to teach us how to live in alignment with the way that God has designed the world to work. Now, Proverbs aren't unique to the scripture. There are Proverbs in most cultures around the world and throughout time, but they are a part of the scriptures, and these Proverbs are divinely spoken and given to us that we might align our lives with the way God's designed the world to work. Remember, a proverb is a short, pithy statement about the way that the world generally works. And I think the word generally is important. Because when we go to the book of Proverbs, we're not necessarily looking for promises to claim, meaning that if we do this, then this always happens, right? They are principles in Proverbs, not necessarily promises. As one Spanish author defined Proverbs, they are short sentences drawn from long experience. I like that. I think that's a good picture of what we get even in the book of Proverbs. And to start us off today, we are actually going to start at the very first verse on the first page of the Bible. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This familiar to anyone? Okay. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And, will you just say this with me, church? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the very first thing that we see God do in the scriptures is speak is speak. God said, and then light came into existence. And as you read through the creative narrative in Genesis, what you're going to see is over and over again, God speaks and something exists that didn't exist before. God speaks and something comes into being. And if we step back, I think what we're seeing is that God's words are fundamentally creative in nature. When God speaks, things happen. I love the way that A.J. Savoda summarized the Genesis 1 narrative. He said this, There was nothing, then there were words, then there was everything. There was nothing, then God spoke, and then there was everything that we see around us. That's Genesis chapter 1 in a nutshell. God creates the entire universe with a word. You might say that we live in a spoken world. We live in a spoken world. His words have the power to create out of nothing, but his words, his words aren't the only words that are being spoken. If you fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, you'll start to see that the enemy of our souls speaks also. God creates and things exist, and Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, what? Said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And we don't have time today to get into the way that the enemy is twisting the words of God. What I want you to see is that God uses words to create and the enemy uses words to unravel. 
that the enemy doesn't have the same kind of creative prowess with his words. He cannot speak something into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo. But he does have the ability to create with the things that he says. He creates chaos, he creates death, and he creates pain. And in essence, when God speaks, it accomplishes his mission of creation and life. And when the enemy speaks lies, he's the father of lies, according to Jesus, it creates death. So there's something about the way that God created the world to work that gives words a sense of weightiness. From the very beginning, there is a weight to words that are spoken. Sometimes words bring life, and at other times, words bring death, but words are very rarely neutral. It might be the reason that as we read through the book of Proverbs, there are over 150 verses that reference the words that we speak. 150. One in six verses in Proverbs is about the way that we talk. Turns out, that's really important. That's an understatement. There are more Proverbs about your speech than there are about your finances, than there are about your family, than there are about your money, than there are about your work, anything else that you do. There are more more Proverbs about your words than really anything else. And so I want to unpack this idea of the weightiness of words with you today. And I want to invite you to open to Proverbs chapter 18. That's where we're going to be starting. Proverbs chapter 18. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you that Proverbs is is fairly unique and wisdom literature often works this way where it's not designed necessarily to just be taught straight through as a chapter. The first nine chapters really set up to be taught straight through exegetically in Proverbs. But then after that, it gets a bit chaotic. You have to sort of try really hard to follow the themes. We're going to camp out in Proverbs chapter 18 today, but what you'll notice is we're not hitting every verse. If we did, this sermon would feel a bit schizophrenic. So I want to spare you of that. Start with me in verse 20, because I really think this is the mountaintop of the prominence and power of words. Here's what Solomon wrote. He said, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. Meaning that there's some connection between the words that you speak and the food that you eat and the satisfaction that you experience in life, both physically and emotionally, is connected to your words. He's satisfied by the yield of his lips. And then he says, catch this, death and life are in the power of the, what? Tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Now, my guess is that you wouldn't have much trouble affirming that God's words have power, right? That they have the power of life and death. You might even say, yeah, and, and, and the enemy's words have, have power. They have the power of, of death also. We might not have trouble saying that, but I don't know if we would be as apt to say our words have power. Our words have the power of life and death. But that's exactly what Solomon's saying. He's not referencing God's words here. He's referencing your words. That they have the power to speak life or to speak pain, to speak joy or to speak hurt. As George Bernard Shaw said, syllables govern the world. And according to the scriptures, he's right. There's a reason that blessing and curses play such a prominent role 
in the drama that unfolds in Scripture. And Solomon's point for us, and I think it's poignant enough for us to just sit in today and try to hold a mirror up to ourselves as best we can. His point is that spoken words have the power to shape human lives. That our lives are shaped by the words that we speak and the words that are spoken over us. So let's apply this less generally and more directly. That there is death or life, the death or life of your marriage is in the power of the tongue. The death or life of your parenting is in the power of the tongue. The death and life of your friendships is in the power of the tongue. The death and life of your career is in the power of the tongue. It turns out that Words carry a sense of weightiness to them, don't they? I don't know if you heard this adage as a young kid. I I know that I did. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. Of all of the lies that we were told as kids, (laughs) I believe this one stands most prominent. How many of you can remember something that somebody said to you in grade school. Me too. Me too. Words have the ability to stick with us and to shape us and to form us. I would argue that there is no way to over-exaggerate the power of words. That, That they carry that much weightiness to us. James picks this up in his epistle to the churches and listen to what he says. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also. So so he's painting two pictures and then his point is this. So also The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Two pictures. The first is of a horse that has a bit in its mouth. Please do not email PETA about this sermon, okay? All right? This is not a commentary on whether this is good or bad or humane or inhumane. Okay, Um, but the way that horses were controlled was by putting a bit into their mouth and then the rider would be able to direct the horse and make it go where it wanted to go. It's a beast of an animal, but this little piece was able to control it. The second picture was of a ship, massive ship that's beaten about by waves and wind, but is controlled by a little rudder at the back end of a ship. And here's what James says. Your tongue has that same kind of power. It can direct the course of your entire life. Through speech, people have fallen in love and lost love. People have gotten jobs and been fired. Don't elbow anybody. People have developed friendships and they've been beaten up. I would argue that nothing holds more power than your tongue. 
Now, because of the nearly ubiquitous nature of the power of words as displayed in the book of Proverbs, it's sort of hard to trace this theme and to say, I'm going to give you an entire summary of it today. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is use chapter 18 as a trellis of sorts so that the vine of this message can grow up it. And so what I want you to do is just go back to verse 6, because this is the very first time in the book of Proverbs that Solomon mentions, or in verse, chapter 18, that Solomon mentions our speech. And listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, a fool's lips walk into a fight, which is a funny picture, isn't it? If you were to sort of paint a picture of what he just said and, and make it more literal, your lips walk into a fight. That's sort of funny. And his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to the soul. Now, really quick, um, the fool, we typically think of a fool as somebody who in general terms does things that are not wise. In the book of Proverbs, the fool is a more specific character. Think of like a character in a novel. The fool in Proverbs is somebody who knows the right thing to do, but doesn't do it. It's somebody who thinks that they are above the wisdom that God has wired the world to function within. The fool says things like, I know most of the people get beat up because of their words, but I'm not going to get beat up because of mine. I can say this and get away with it. And Solomon goes, probably not going to happen. Because of the words that this person speaks, they stir people up, they create division, they elicit a negative response. So by way of contrast, the wise person, they they would use their words not to bring about a, a fight, but to build up. So if we were to put Solomon's words in more of a positive sense, I think we would read it something like this, decide to build up rather than to tear down. That's how we start to speak life with our words. We decide to build up rather than to tear down. I could be wrong, but most of the time, people don't get into trouble with their words when they're encouraging. Am I right? The very few people have gotten beat up because they encouraged somebody. And so Solomon's point is, listen, build people up rather than tear people down. It was the same point that Paul echoed to the church in Ephesus when he said, let how much? No corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And I, I just want to like write back to Paul. Can we just go with like 90%, right? And he goes, no, no, no. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building up as is fit for the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So this word corrupt talk in the Greek quite literally means rotten or worthless. And he's saying, rather than saying rotten or worthless things, How about you focus on building people up and, oh, by the way, your words can be vehicles of God's grace into the lives of other people. But here's the problem that we face. We innately, as human beings, have what we call a negativity bias. We have a negativity bias. And that's really, really good when you need to survive in the wilderness, right? That you're on the lookout for things that could be a threat to you and you are ready to point them out and you are ready to address them and or run the other way. It's really good when you want to survive. A negativity bias, however, is not great when you want, for example, your marriage to thrive. 
Like those things come into conflict. It's really interesting because Christopher Nash, who was a professor of communication at Stanford, he actually did this study and was able to prove that we view people who are negative as being smarter than people who are positive. Do you know that? That when somebody speaks negative words, we go, well, they must be really smart. And when somebody offers praise, we go, eh, they're not quite as intelligent as that guy. Which is fascinating. The takeaway is not be more negative. Just so we're clear, don't write that down as a to-do. Like, I want to be smarter. I got to be more critical. Don't do that, right? But it's reflected even in our words in the English language. 62% of the emotion words in the English language are negative emotions. 32%, by contrast, are positive. So if you're doing the math, you're going, that doesn't add up to 100%. Evidently, there's some that are neutral, okay? But even more of our words communicate negativity than they do positive. So what do we do with this? I mean, we want to be people who build up rather than tear down, but we, all of us, have a negativity bias. Here's what we do. Here, here's what I think we can do. Number one, I think we just need to name that. I think we need to recognize it. That we're programmed to see negative things more quickly than we are wired to see things that are good and positive. Let me give you an example. On um, our vacation that we just got back from a week and a half ago, uh, we went to Colorado and we drove there. And on the way back, um, I took the first shift and then my wife took the second shift. And she was driving and I was reading my book on Kindle. And um, I looked up and we were sort of in this construction zone. And she was in the left lane of a two-lane road, the fast lane. And somebody, I looked to my right, and somebody zoomed past us on the right. And I very kindly said to her, <clears throat> Hey, babe, people aren't supposed to pass you on the right. You're in the fast lane. Maybe you should get over into the slow lane. If you don't believe in miracles, I am still standing before you, friends. <laughs> Let me testify. <laughs> and listen, here's the deal. She had driven probably 300 miles at this point in time, masterfully navigated through the desert of Utah. And I hadn't offered one word of praise. Not one word of Man, you are really doing a great job driving. I'd be able to read here without even thinking about the road. I am so thankful for your Mario Andretti type of skills, right? I said none of that. But, oh, that one time when that car buzzed by us on the right, I noticed. I noticed. And I had to point it out. I think if we start to rec recognize our propensity to, to identify the negative instead of the positive, it'll at least be a step in getting to address it. Here's the second thing. I think we, we, it just, we just need to understand the way that we are wired and the reality that it takes a lot of positive comments to override the negative comments. That these are not a one-to-one -one relationship. See, in our brains, there are two different systems that are at work. One for negative stimuli and one for positive stimuli. And the amygdala in your brain uses approximately two-thirds of its neurons to detect negative experiences. 
And once the brain sees those, they store those, your brain stores those in the long-term memory bank of your brain almost immediately. By way of contrast, in order to have a positive word stick with you, you need to dwell on it for at least 12 seconds for it to make its way into your long-term memory. That's why when I ask you to raise your hand if you've had somebody in grade school say something negative that shaped and formed you, every single one of us raised our hands, but if we tried to remember a positive thing somebody said, it would probably be a lot harder. As Rick Hansen said, the brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. It's true. It's true. And so that's why a person can say something negative to you and it impacts you deeply and 10 people can say something positive to you and it sort of is just like water off a duck's back. So let me just speak, um, if you're a parent in the room, I think this is really applicable for parents. That in addressing our kids, we need to be aware that the negative we speak, it's gonna stick. The positive we speak we need to reinforce like crazy for it to get into their hearts. Right? And so I think here's what we can do. Number one, we need to recognize it. But I think just for you personally, when somebody says something to you that's positive, pause long enough to let it get into your long-term memory. You could even say something funny like, wow, that's really good. I need 12 seconds to process that. <laughs> There it is. It's about 12. It's longer than you think, right? You were all like, could you get on with it, right? It's longer than we think, which is why it often doesn't stick. Or maybe just maybe when somebody sends you a scathing email, or maybe I'm just talking to me, um, you also, you read that one and respond, but man, the, the 10 good ones that you read, those are the ones to hold on to. Those are the ones to create a little file, encouragement. Click on that on a hard day. And maybe you just have it in the back of your mind, but we have got to do a better job of prompting ourselves to remember the good. Because as Solomon said, a, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. That the words we speak have the ability to shape and form our soul. How many of you have lost sleep because of something you said that you wish you could take back? Right. A snare to the soul. I can assure you that my coaching comment to my wife about her driving did not make for a more pleasant drive. It didn't. And yet, that, I don't know about you, but that's just, that's not who I want to be. In Proverbs chapter 16, 24, it says this, gracious words are like honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul. And I think we get that, right? We're like, yes, words have the ability to impact us emotionally and speak to our souls. Amen. Power of life and death of the soul. Amen. And then Solomon adds, and health to the body. Meaning that words don't just impact your soul, they can also impact your physical body. How many of you have been sick over something you said or something that was said to you? Yeah. 
So I tried to sort of develop or list out as many ways as I could think of to speak honeycomb and health and life. And here's a few of the things that I came up with. What if we started to bless, speak a good word about people or encourage or compliment or thank? What if you tried to figure out ways to speak hope into the lives of others or express gratitude or love? What if you affirmed devotion, said things like, I'm I'm with you in this. I'm not going anywhere. Or what if you shared good news? Hey, here's what God is doing in my life. Here's the way he's at work. What, What if you offered to help? Or just let somebody know that you're thinking about them. See, these are all ways that we could speak life rather than death, that we could build up rather than tear down. My guess is that you can add to this list and I would encourage you to do it. Even maybe write these out, take a picture of it, write these down, keep them um, maybe in your car, keep them on your keyboard, right? Anybody? Anybody wish that there was an unsend button on email? Come on. And maybe just maybe we said, God, help us be the kind of people who with our words build up rather than tear down, speak life rather than death. Listen to what Solomon said next. He said, the words of a, what? Whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And the word whisperer here is translated from a Hebrew word, and it quite literally means whisperer, but the word is often used idiomatically. And I think a better translation is that of, the NIV translates it, the words of a gossip. Quite literally means somebody who whispers, about somebody else behind their back. So let's define this word gossip because I think all of us have a picture of it in our mind and it'd be good for us all to be on the same page. Here's what gossip is. Gossip is sharing information that damages another person's reputation with somebody who isn't a part of the problem and who cannot be a part of the solution. Damaging information to somebody else who isn't a part of the problem and has no ability to be a part of the solution. And it is fascinating, you guys, how much the scriptures speak about gossip. I think there's two reasons for that. That gossip is nothing new. We we use gossip as a way to jockey, as a way to get ahead, as a way to triangulate for power. People typically use gossip when they're frustrated and they want to sort of get back at somebody. But I think the real reason that the scriptures talk so much about gossip is because it has the absolute ability uniquely to destroy a community. To destroy a marriage, to destroy a family, to destroy a church. A church. So listen to what Solomon would say elsewhere. Gossip betrays a confidence but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. A perverse person stirs stirs up conflict and gossip separates close friends. Here's what he's saying. That gossip never brings people together. It always drives people apart. Now, now, here's the thing. It might bring the person that you're sharing the gossip with closer to you in a very unhealthy manner, right? Right? It always, always essentially creates division. It's really interesting because the Midrash mentions gossip. And it says this, it says this, the evil tongue or the gossiping tongue slays three. The slanderer, the slandered, and the listener. 
So he says gossip is powerful because it affects at least three groups of people. The person sharing the gossip, the person hearing the gossip, and the person being gossiped about. But look closer because I think in this passage of scripture, Solomon isn't painting in generalities. He's actually giving us some meat to really hold on to, to consider. Listen to what he said. He said that words of a gossip are like choice morsels. And here's his point. The reason people gossip is because it makes us feel good. It tastes good. (laughs) Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase says that gossip is like cheap candy. We go, mmm, yum. And why would we say that? Why would we live that out? Well, I think gossip helps us experience a, a bit of power. When we hear gossip, we feel like we're in the know. right? And that's why the cycle is so hard to break. But he says they go down into the innermost parts. I think what he's saying is, yep, it tastes good initially, but then it starts to sit in your stomach. And it's like eating a whole bag of Skittles and you feel sick to your stomach but it sticks with you. It sticks with you. It reshapes the way that we see people, organizations or churches, and you can't unhear it. So if we were to sort of take Solomon's point and, and, and turn it positive for us to say, what does it look like to apply this today? I think it means that we choose to talk to people rather than about people. And that's what it means. In essence, gossip is cowardice. Confrontation takes courage. And I know talking about someone is way easier than talking to someone. But if we are going to be a Jesus community, then I believe we have to be a community of truth and grace, which means that we must, must be willing to talk to rather than to talk about. And can I be honest with you? I think we have some room to grow in this. I think we have some room to grow in this. And I think the reason that in almost every single epistle that's written in the New Testament addresses gossip is because that's nothing new. People have always struggled with this. And I guess I would just say, I don't think that we are beyond it, but I would say that healthy churches have no place for gossip, none. And so the onus really is on all of us. And so if you call Emmanuel Faith home, I'm going to plead with you to do at least two things. Number one, would you commit to talking to people rather than about people? Number two, if somebody starts to talk to you about somebody else, then just kindly stop them and say, hey, listen, it sounds like you should go have a conversation with them rather than me. And if some of us start doing that on a consistent basis, oh my goodness, it'll reshape the culture of a church, of an organization, of a family. Because words have the power of life and death. Finally, listen to what Solomon said. Verse 13, skip down there with me. Chapter 18, he says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And this is part of a larger teaching in the scriptures and specifically in the book of Proverbs that I didn't really recognize until my latest read through and getting ready for this sermon series. And it's the wisdom of remaining silent. I don't know why I didn't catch this because there are so many times when people want Jesus to answer a question and he just simply doesn't answer it. And it frustrates people. 
But he remained silent when people expected an answer. Solomon would encourage the same thing in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 10, verse 19, he says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. (laughs) Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Uh, We have a um, proverb in our culture that's very similar. It's better to keep quiet and have everybody think you're a fool than to open your mouth and prove it. You heard that before? Essentially echoing the same thing. But I love the way that Ken Witsuma put it in his great little book on communication. He said, you can never go wrong with listening. But you can rarely go right without it. So why does silence and listening have so much power? Well, let me give you three quick reasons. Number one, when you listen to somebody, you affirm their humanity. You affirm their value. Listening to somebody's story, the things that have shaped them and made them and molded them is one of the best ways you can love. That's the first reason. But second, when you're in the posture of listening rather than talking, you're in the posture of of learning. I think it's the reason that Solomon would start off this section of scripture by saying, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Now, if there is one verse that summarizes social media, let me suggest to you, it is Proverbs chapter 18, verse two. Because Social media is entirely designed to isolate us in our own little digital enclaves and then just reinforce what we think. That's what those algorithms do. They figure out what you like and then they feed you more of that. But I think Solomon's saying, listen, if we only listen to our own opinion, we don't open ourselves up to actually learn, then man, we're missing out. That's the second reason. And then finally, I think, I think silence has such power Because it gives us the unique ability to calm down and to answer in a way that reflects the person that we want to become. We teach kids to pause and count to 10 when somebody does something mean to them before they respond. And I don't think it would be bad for adults to be taught the same thing. I mean, how funny would it be if somebody said something mean to you and then you went one, two, three, four, five, counted to 10, right? So don't, don't do it out loud, but man, like pause, sit with it, wait a day before you respond on email. If you feel like you have to use all caps, you haven't waited long enough, right? But I think what Solomon is teaching us is, man, there is such power in seeking to listen more than you talk. As Ken Blanchard said, all of us are smarter than any one of us. It's true. And for people like me who like to talk a lot, it's good to be reminded that the length and quantity of our speech does not necessarily equal the quality of speech. (laughs) Someone's like, amen. You got a minute 38, buddy, right? Anybody ever heard of Edward Everett? Edward Everett gave the keynote speech at the dedication of the Gettysburg National Cemetery. 
He talked for over two hours in his keynote speech. And after him, there was a man who spoke for about two minutes. He spoke 272 messages, or 272 words. And my guess is you've heard of him. His name is Abraham Lincoln, and it was the Gettysburg Address. It was so quick in contrast to Everett's speech that the photographers did not have time to get a picture of him. And yet, the ripple effects of what he spoke are still felt today. So this week, what if you paid attention to how much you listened versus how much you talked? And what if just one spiritual practice you endeavored to undertake was that you were going to practice the discipline of not getting the last word? So really quick review. Our words have power. Our words have the power of life and death. So we want to be the kind of people that build up with our words rather than tear down with our words. We want to talk to people rather than about people. And we want to be the kind of people who listen more than we talk. And can we agree that all of that sounds really, really good, but that it's really, really hard to do? Is anybody with me? Why is that? Why is it that it's so hard to control our tongue? I think Jesus taught us why that's so hard. He said this, you brood of vipers, which by the way is not a compliment. He said, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. Here's what he says. The reason that it's so hard to control your tongue is because your tongue is simply a reflection of your heart. And I don't know that we've really grappled with what Jesus said strongly enough. Because we say things like, I said that, but I didn't really mean it. No, according to Jesus, you did. You just don't want to have meant it. Like, being more honest might help, right? Or, I said that, but that was so out of alignment with my character. No, it wasn't. It was directly in line with what was in your heart. And until we get serious about naming the darkness within, I don't think we will ever break free from the shackles of our own sin. C.S. Lewis said that our words are like many incarnations. They are us on the page. So if speech is a reflection of our hearts, how do we change our hearts? How do we change our hearts? And here's my invitation to you. It's that before you speak a better word, you must first hear a better word. Because we have all had words spoken over us, deficiencies spoken over us, Anger spoken over us, bitter spoken over us. And listen, listen, listen. It's not just other people speaking over you. You do know that your words that you speak to yourself also have the power of life and death. They may have more power than any of the other words that have been spoken over you. The venom that we speak comes from a deficiency that we feel in the core of our being. So you must first hear a better word. So tonight, today, I just, I want you to hear a better word. I want you to hear that in, even in light of all of your failures and shortcomings, you are loved by the God of the universe. He calls you his own. 
He says that he's for you, that when you were a sinner, meaning that you were at the bottom, Christ loved you and gave himself for you. He rejoices over you with singing. Your name is engraved on the palm of his hand. He sees you in your worst and he loves you right there. And when that word starts to sink into your soul, it becomes like a seed that then is able to bear fruit in the words that we speak to others. And so maybe when something comes out of our mouth and we go, gosh, I wish there was a rewind button on life or an unsend button on email. Maybe we pause long enough to go, what lie am I believing that's causing me to speak that way? Because there's something going on inside that Jesus wants to address. And once you change the way you talk to yourself, and start agreeing with God about you, then, then, goodness and life and joy and blessing will start to flow through you because it's bubbling up in you. So here's my dream, you guys. Here's my dream, is that we would become a community of blessing, a community that speaks a better word about and over one another, that we would speak a better word over our own lives. That's why we do a benediction at the end of every single one of our services. Benediction literally means good word. We wanna end by speaking a good word over one another. And we're not unique or new in that. The scriptures knew that we would need that. That's why there have always been benedictions throughout the scriptures and throughout communities of faith, people speaking a good word. Here's the most famous one, Numbers chapter six, verses 24 through 26. It was the blessing that the priests were commanded to speak over the nation of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you his peace. And that was designed to sit on a community with a weightiness of life. Because words have the power of life or death and this word is a word of life. That's a good word. May you, may we believe it. May it become like a seed in the soil of our soul that gives birth to the words of blessing that we would speak to everybody else. Because here's the truth. When you speak a better word, you spark a better world. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of person I want to be. And Solomon says, ah, that's wisdom. Let's pray. So Lord, even right now, would you just help us identify where we're at with all of this? Are, do our words bring life or do they bring death? Do they spur on joy or do they bring about pain? And Lord, when we're, where we're off, we wanna confess and repent and then we would ask this week, Jesus, would you help us be the kind of people that speak life? Help us start with speaking life over ourselves, agreeing with you and who you say we are, and then help us be the kind of people who speak life over those around us. If our tongue has the power of life and death, we want to speak life. May it be so, Jesus. May it be so. 
In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.